Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? If we haven't met, my name is Carlos. Uh, if you're watching online, um, I'm also online. Um, I on, I'm on this platform called Facebook. Uh, so if you look up Carlos Gomez, I'm about one of maybe 500,000. So you can scroll. Love to connect with you uh, on Facebook. Or I'm also on Instagram. I'm not on TikTok. Uh, I'm not that cool yet, but it's on the to-do list this week. Uh, but on Instagram, my handle is eyes set on Zion. Why? Because, again, there are way too many Carlos Gomez's. Uh, but the I said on Zion was an inspiration from a rock band that I was really into in sixth grade <laughs> called P.O.D. out of San Diego, right? Yeah, some, yeah, some, of, you, some of you bumping that, right? Uh, anyways, uh, I'm, I'm bragging as an adult of a decision I made as a sixth grader and still with me, so, but, but it's true. That is my handle. Um, but we would, I would love to connect in person if you're in the room after the service. Um, we are going to begin with some scripture. So let's read today's scripture. It says, Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. And so if you're joining us for the first time or watching online, we are in this series that we have titled Last Words, and they are considering the final statements, the final sayings that we have recorded of Jesus while hanging on the cross, while being crucified. And this particular uh, verses that we've read out of John is actually unique. It's actually the only um, account of this incident. And so I want you to turn to a neighbor and say, hey, this is some exclusive stuff we're listening to. This is exclusive. Yeah, type it out. This is exclusive. Um, not only is this exclusive, but I, I, would, I would describe this moment as intense. If you thought March Madness is intense, man, this scene, lean into this scene. By the way, how's your bracket doing? Don't want to talk about it. All right, me either, me either. Um, this moment, it's intense. This moment is intentional. Um, by all accounts, when I read Jesus, when I read the Gospels, he's not a man that's going to waste a moment. He's not a man that's going to waste words. If you think Jared Roth, was intentional. Let me introduce you to Jesus, right? Let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus, I would describe him, um, he was a man on a mission, and he was nearing the finish line. It actually says the very next verse, if we were to continue to read, it says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. After saying this, says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. You can say, hey, these words completed his mission. Wow. He knew that what he was sent to do on earth was coming to an end. This is an incredible moment. This is an intense moment. This is an intentional moment. I want us to lean in into this moment. It says that Jesus was very aware of, 
of, of the fact that, that, that things were coming to a close. It says in John 13, a few chapters earlier in the same gospel, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I want you to say, to the very end. Behold Jesus on the cross, loving his disciples to the very end. I want you to consider something. Uh, how do you love when you are tired? As a former uh, teacher, uh, I'm willing to admit that my six-period students did not get the best version of Mr. Gomez. Especially if it was days uh, nearing into winter break and summer break, right? They did not get my best, and every teacher in the room says amen, right? But Jesus wasn't like Mr. Gomez, right? He loved to the very end. Who do we know loves this faithfully? I, I, uh, there's, a, there's a famous show that says, uh, there's a show on Netflix that's very popular. It's, it's called Cobra Kai. Uh, ask your parents if you can watch it, kids. Uh, but it says, uh, with a, the slogan for Cobra Kai, this dojo, is that Cobra Kai never dies. And I'm here to say that the love of Jesus never dies. And we should be putting that on a T-shirt. And we saw this last week, right? We saw this last week that this unending love of Jesus was shown to a man that we were introduced as Criminal Bill. How many of you remember Criminal Bill? All right, if you don't, you just told on yourself. You have not watched last week's message. So that's your homework. It's a good one. Right? But we see that, that um, Jesus, his love, isn't, it isn't just steadfast. It isn't just enduring. But it's also all encompassing. And here's why. We have Jesus on the cross showing love in one moment to the social outcast, criminal bill. And in just a few moments later, we have Jesus on the cross showing love to his closest family and friend. And so let's make some observations. Uh, 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 first off, let's notice the who. Notice who's there. And although these words uh, that are found in red are directed to two individuals, Mary and John, and we'll dive into them in a bit, uh, it's, it's worth noting that there are a total of five people mentioned in this scene, and four of them are women. And three have the name Mary. And some of you might think that that is very, very odd. Well, not in my family. Because <laughs> you see, my mother is one of four women, and three of them are named Maria. And it gets better. Because can you guess the name of my mother-in-law? <laughs> es Maria. And here's a bonus one for you. Can you guess the name of her twin sister? It's Maria. <laughs> and so this is completely normal for my family. I mean, if you ever come to one of my family barbecues and you want to kind of create kind of a scene, just go in there and yell three words, Maria las tortillas. 
right? Maria, get the tortillas, right? They're burning. Like, uh, come on, right? I want to eat some tacos, right? And so this is not odd for my family, um, but it, it does, um, it does uh, do us some good to just know that these five individuals who are on the scene, I mean, can we question their love for Jesus? I mean, if we think about what they're doing, I mean, they are putting their lives at risk for being on the cross. I mean, these five, I would imagine they were Jesus' MySpace top eight. You remember that? You remember some friendships that you broke because you didn't put in the top eight, right? Yes. I mean, they were, they were Jesus' day ones. That's my day one. And if you don't know what that means, then you're, you're probably over 20, right? <laughs> They were Jesus' ride or dies. And four out of them, four out of five of them were what? Women. Now, um, if, if you haven't read the Gospels, you'll quickly find out that women played a significant role in the ministry of Jesus. And I just want to highlight a few. We know that uh, these women and others not mentioned were actually critical to the financial funding of Jesus' public ministry. Out of their own means, they made the ministry possible. We know that it was a woman who is considered one of the first evangelists for Jesus when she drew her entire village as she said, come meet the man that knew everything about me. We know that Jesus spoke words of affirmation for the faith of several women. We know that Jesus highlighted the generosity of another and the manner, the degree of praise of a third. Jesus encouraged the decision of one woman to sit at his feet and learn. He did not discourage that. And it was women who would be the first to encounter the resurrected Christ. Friends, all that to say is that God, he has no problem including women and being glorified through women. And so it should not surprise us, but it should be noted that it was a group of mostly courageous and faithful women on this scene. Go, women, go. Amen? Some ad ad additional observations. One, we should notice the proximity. Uh, the language of the Gospels are, are intentional. It says that they are standing where? Near. Not only are they, are they near, they're close enough to hear the words of Jesus, close enough to be spoken to. We read specifically that when Jesus sees Mary and John standing together, I ask myself, did Jesus know what they might have been thinking or feeling? And could it be that these words cut to the heart of what those thoughts and emotions could have been? And so let's read it again. It says, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, if you, don't, if you haven't figured it out, that's John, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. 
Notice the statements. We're not reading a conversation. We're not reading an exchange. We're not reading a back and forth. Instead, it seems to me that what we're reading is a set your focus. It's like Jesus saying, hey, for a moment at least, stop looking at me and look at each other. Jesus is setting the focus for two people that he cares deeply about. And I believe that God wants to do the same thing for us today. In 2022, he wants to reset our focus. I also want you to notice the impact, the result of these statements by Jesus from the cross to John and Mary. It says simply, and from then on, this disciple took her into his home. It seems to me that in just two statements, Jesus has the ability to change the nature of a relationship. It was almost as if it just with his own words, he can create new relationships. We shouldn't be surprised. We read about a God who spoke creation into existence. This is easy stuff for Jesus in his words. And so thank you for going through those applications with me. I want, I'm sorry, those observations with me. The important thing of, of, of looking at God's word is what does it apply to, how does it apply? And so I want to explore three questions. They're going to be in three parts, and they're going to sound very similar uh, because they are. It says, what these last words might have meant for Mary. That's the first question, what these last words might have meant for Mary. The second one is what these last words might have meant for John, and the final question, I believe a very important question, one that I hope you stay in the room for or stay logged on for, and that's what these last words might mean for you and I. And so first, what did these words mean for Mary? Well, let's, let's, just, let's just be very basic and simple and, and, and uh, um, uh, acknowledge that what Mary was experiencing, what she was witnessing, was a wrongful, uh, unjust, brutal, I, I mean, uh, an execution design to, to maximize suffering. I mean, her pain is actually prophesied. If we read in Luke 2, there's a line in there that says, a sword will pierce her heart, describing the type of pain that Mary was going to experience because of the early death of her son. I've heard it said that no parent should have to bury their children. And some here today know the pain, the sorrow, the devastation that that brings. And yet Mary, in her faithfulness and love for her son, she, she chooses to stand near and watch her son's life being taken from her. And although Jesus multiple times told his disciples, and I imagine Mary, that all of this would happen, and although he said, hey, your grief is going to turn to joy, although they had that knowledge, it still didn't make this moment any easier because death was not something that you and I or Mary was supposed to experience in the first place. 
And so Mary, in this moment, all she can see is the cross, and um, this in itself, of course, is crushing, but I want us to also consider that the death of Jesus had some very personal, some very private, some, some very practical implications for Mary as well. So you know, we, we, we see, people have studied, and they, they notice that Joseph is not in, in, in the picture um, after uh, this account where Jesus was 12 years old. There is no Joseph in any of the adult accounts of Jesus' life. And so it's very widely assumed that, that Joseph had passed away a long time ago. And so um, Mary was um, probably in her 40s, um, and, you know, that to us sounds young, but she's living in a culture where life expectancy was not um, very great. Uh, I've read as low as 35, and so Mary is an older person in her culture, and not only is she an older person, she's living in a time where women, they're faced with tremendous challenges to be self-sustaining. All that to say is Mary is a widow, and she is potentially in a very vulnerable position. She needed her children. She needed a husband to care for her. Because you see, this was before all the fancy and nice things like life insurance and Aflac and Liberty Mutual, right? And the cringy commercials that I just can't stop but watch each and every time. They have me hooked Right? Mary couldn't go down into you know, the government office and um, sign up for low-income housing. Mary was at the risk of being vulnerable because of the death of her son. So the question is, would Jesus leave her that way? We know that Jesus loved her to the very end. Widows and other vulnerable people are at the heart of God. There are about 80 references to widows in all of the Bible. One of them is found in Psalm 68:5. It says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. So what could these last words have meant for Mary? Woman, behold your son. With these last words, Jesus was caring for Mary. What it meant was Mary would not be left abandoned. Her days as being the mother of Jesus were coming to an end. But because of what Jesus said that day, her days as John's mother was just beginning. Jesus was choosing John Right, his best pick, top rank, number one seed for Mary to take care of her, to love her, to provide for her. And so Jesus knew that Mary still needed a son, and Jesus set her focus on John as that son. What did these last words mean for that son, John? Well, let's consider uh, what we know about John. Uh, we know that John, early on, was given a nickname along with his brother Nate, uh, James um, by Jesus himself, and they were both together called what? The Sons of Thunder. 
We see that thunderous attitude in Luke 9 when um, John is almost, he's almost like bragging or boasting about preventing another group from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they weren't part of our group. They weren't with us. And so we see that John, he's, he's a bit of a, an elitist, a separatist. You know, he's, a, he's kind of self-centered and self-focused. And um, later on in that same chapter, Luke 9, uh, there, there's uh, an even more significant event that shows John's character where he suggests to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know that village, the Samaritan village that we just came out of because they, they rejected us? You want me to call down fire from heaven just to teach him a lesson? You remember that? John, he was vengeful. John, um, he was the guy that uh, later on in Mark 12 or 20, he sends his mom, right? Total mama's boy move. He sends his mom to ask Jesus if he and his brother can get a high-ranking position in the future kingdom. It seems like John, he was thirsty for power. By the way, all of these accounts that I just mentioned, John conveniently fails to mention in his own gospel. You catch that? Had no remembrance of these incidents. But let me share one that he did. Later on, we read that John is the one that says, hey, when Peter and I ran to the tomb, guess who got there first? Guess who was the better sprinter? It was me. Right? So, we see that John was even boastful. And so, in other words, who was John? John was a man whose character needed a lot of work. John was a lot like us. But Jesus loved John. He didn't allow these things to, um, to uh, get in the way of working through John. At least John felt that Jesus loved him. I mean, he did give himself the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so what did these last words mean for John? I want to suggest to us that Jesus, at this moment, was setting John up to do some major character-transforming tra- character work to fit his life calling. Because let's consider what John later becomes. We see that John is later known as the elder. He is one of the three pillars of the church. We see in his writings in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that they are pretty much centered around the topic or the call to love. You see, later on in life, John is writing words like, my little children, dear children, beloved, love one another. What happened to the son of thunder? What happened to John? What brought this change of character, this tenderness, this compassion, this simplification of, hey, God has called us to love one another? Could it be that it was his decision, his experience in taking in this widow, a woman uh, that wasn't his mother 
into his home where he spent, we don't know how many years, how much time, how many meals, how many conversations, how many walks, how many moments looking after, learning from, collaborating with, reminiscing. How do you think caring for the very mother of Jesus must have changed John? Could it be that it was his relationship with Mary, the vehicle or one of the vehicles that Jesus used to change John forever, an everlasting difference, to make him simply less boastful, less vengeful, less arrogant, more compassionate, more fatherly? Could it be that Jesus knew that his future church would not need thunder strikers, but that they would need fathers? I believe that John would probably go home um, after a long day and be in his bed and thinking, wow, Jesus trusted me with his mother. He loves me that much. And that is probably one of the reasons why when he penned his gospel, he says, I'm not even going to call myself John. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I want to suggest that Jesus knew that John, he needed Mary just as much as Mary needed John, but for different reasons. Behold your mother. With these last words, Jesus, I believe he was transforming John, and he was caring for Mary. And so our final question, what do these last words mean for you and I? What, what can we know about God? What can we know about uh, ourselves with these statements? One, the first one is this. God's love, it is both macro and micro. It is both big and intimate. It is both big and small. I mean, consider this, that we are reading a moment where Jesus is, he's simultaneously dying for the sins of human history and taking care of the intimate needs of his mother and beloved disciple at the same time. And so this tells me that God can meet individual and intimate needs while taking care of the big stuff. God is not a God that's too busy being CEO and running the universe to hear about your personal hurts and pains and shortcomings. His love, it's both macro and micro. And this is why the Bible says, hey, you know what? Um, There's really no limit as long as you come, you know, with with a sincere heart because he knows your heart. He says you can pray about everything. Everything. Big, small, personal, public. God invites us. He says, my love can encompass it all. I'm not too busy for you. But I believe the part that we need to be thinking about is the fact that Mary and John, they were able to get this individualized care. Why? 
because they were standing near the cross. And so today, I, I just ask you a simple question. Where are you standing in relation to Jesus? How far or close are you to the Son of God? Because I believe that what God is saying through his word and through this incident that, hey, hey, if you're near, you're going to be able to hear my voice. And that's why uh, James, the brother of John, later writes in his letter, he says, hey, if you draw near to him, if you get close, he's going to draw near to you. Because we can all, like John, go to bed at night and say, hey, man, Jesus, he really loves me. And we can also flex that title, we are the disciples whom Jesus loves. Amen? The second thing I want to uh, highlight, uh, just, just uh, an observation, is that Jesus is saying something really simple. He's saying, hey, love who I love. Love who I love. And so if you are wondering, who does Jesus love, take a moment and just look around. Take a moment and just look around. Some of you, you're just not going to do it. You're just not going to do it. Take, take a moment. Who, who does Jesus love? Take a moment. Those people that you just gave an awkward glance to, those are the people whom Jesus loves. Let's not complicate it. I mean, think about this. I, I, I was just, just blown away. I mean, there are, I believe, 9 billion people on the planet right now, on seven continents. You know how many countries there are? There are about almost 200 countries. You know how many languages we speak? Over 7,000 languages. Habla en español? Over 7,000 languages, and that's just right now. That's just in the present. I mean, if you consider human history and the number of people that have existed in the countries and the languages and the cultures with them, and it just so happened, folks, it just so happens that you and I Watch it online, in the room. We are alive at the very same time. On the same continent, in the same country, in the same state. We're in the same county. Most of us in the same city. Experiencing the same church service. And so now I have to acknowledge this reality that, you know what? I get to do life with you. I get to behold each and every one of you. And guess what? You have to behold me back. <laughs> but the question after beholding each other is, what are we going to do about it? Jesus saying, love who I love. Love those that you see. You know, it's funny to me that, you know, my life is here and that I'm speaking because, I'll be honest with you, four years ago, uh, I didn't know Hillsborough existed. Four years ago, right? For the first 18 years of my life were spent in this small little town called Pixley, California. Does anyone know where Pixley, California is? See, you don't, see, yeah, my friends there do, right? I actually brought them to make sure there was someone in the room that knew because <laughs> I didn't want to feel like, man, no one knows where Pixley is, right? Right? But <clears throat> I, that was the first 18 years of my life. And, and I think even, even further, before I was even born, my father, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest of six, my father 
courageously. I, I mean, uh, just one day I'll tell you the whole story and the details. He brought our entire family from El Salvador fleeing a civil war. And if it wasn't for that courage, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you today. So friends, as we behold one another and we acknowledge that it's a privilege to behold one another, as we stand near to Jesus, Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, hey, don't just look at me. Look around. You have work to do. You have people to love. Love one another. The third thing I want to pull away from uh, this scene is that we should be considering relationships a gift to form our character. Just like the argument I made that Mary was a gift for John to form his character, we should consider relationships as gifts to form our character. And sometimes instead of loving people that God brings into our lives, we complain about them, right? We complain and we fight and uh, we're all broken. So there, don't, I don't want you to think that there's judgment in, in that saying, but, um, you know, at a minimum, we can become apathetic towards each other, right? We, we, we encounter inconvenient family members in our lives and we see them as now hurdles to overcome or even projects uh, to achieve or even worse, baggage that slows us down. I mean, can you imagine if John felt that way? Can you imagine if there was a conversation between John and the apostles and, you know, Peter was saying, hey, you know, he goes to John's house. Hey, John, we're about to get on a boat and we're going to go to Asia. We're going to spread the gospel. You want to come with? And John is like, man, I, I totally would, but I got to take care of Mary, man. She's here. She's running up my electrical bill, you know. It's like, you know, you guys go ahead, man. I kind of got the short end of the stick. Can you imagine if John felt that way? I actually think John felt the complete opposite. John was intentional about what he included in his gospel, right? Do we see that? He was pretty selective, and the fact that he was the only one that included this, I believe that he saw this as one of of the greatest flexes in his life. I get to care for the mother of God. Of, of Jesus Christ, the Savior of humanity. That is what I get to do. I believe that his title, right, he, that he, he, would, he would reflect on that, say, wow, Jesus loved me that much that he would entrust me with this precious woman. And so the relationships that God has given us, we need to see as precious. And yes, we need to see as relationships that have the potential to form us. And so parents in the room, you know, you were on spring break and uh, you didn't say it out loud, but you thought about it. You said, God, why'd you give me these wild kids? And then your kids, they didn't say, but they were thinking, they were saying, they were saying, God, why didn't you give me cooler parents? Right? But that's not the attitude that one should have. We're all missing the point. Let's consider one another, right, as gifts to be received. Mary made John compassionate. How do you think God is forming you through your relationships? Now, before I I move on to this last point, it's important to make a disclaimer. Not all relationships are Mary and John-type relationships. 
Some relationships have gotten toxic, and if you're in a toxic relationship that's even come, become abusive, please don't hear that you have to put up with that. God wants to form your character by giving boundaries or even ending that unhealthy relationship. I'm talking about the relationships we know God entrusted us with, like those wild kids and uncool parents. Amen? I believe that in 10 years, I'm going to be a very different man simply because I am the father to Charlie Joy. She is a gift that God will use to form me. The final point I want to make, and that's that we see here that God, he does not leave us without help. And we go back to where we started. You know, the mission of Jesus, it says it wasn't complete until he first was going to orchestrate these relationships between Mary and John. And that just shows that God, he is going to leave us uh, with what we need. He's not going to forsake us. He's going to give us all that we need. And what this ultimately means for you and us is that Jesus has done a transaction for us. He's left us also what we need. And that need comes in the form of a person, the form of a helper with the capital H. When Jesus left earth, he made it very, very clear that he would not leave us alone until he returned. He writes in John um, uh, three chapters earlier this. He says, but in fact, he's now talking to his disciples. He says, it is best for you that I go away. I know you've heard this before. But receive it again, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. See, Jesus is making this promise. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to leave you with what you need. And that gift is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, always present to guide you, to strengthen you, at times convict you, to remind you to give you comfort. His word reminds us that his mission was not complete without leaving us with the Holy Spirit. Have we walked with him lately? Have we received him? Have we kept him at bay? Have we quenched him? I want to take a moment and I want to pray for us as we just reflect on what's been said, just believing that it is God's Holy Spirit that ministers to us individually. God knows what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And I just want to start off with those of us in the room or watching online who you are at a place where you are sensing the invitation of Jesus. Jesus speaks in very plain language to his disciples. He makes this invitation, hey, come follow me. And it's through that yes that we see life change. And many of us in the room, we've said yes to the invitation to Jesus. And I want to give a moment for anyone here today or watching online as everyone has their heads bowed down and eyes closed. If you want to say yes to Jesus, God is inviting you 
today to do that moment. And what we want to do is we want to acknowledge that moment. We want to pray for you. So if you are in the room and you want to say yes to Jesus, you can raise your hand. You can look at me and we will acknowledge your yes. If you are online, you could type in, I want to say yes to Jesus. So, Father, you know the hearts in the room. And your word is clear that you respond. You respond to us. And so, Father, I pray for everyone who is saying yes to you for the first time, that they would feel your embrace, Lord, that they would know that they have been forgiven of every sin and that you absolutely love them and want to walk with them, and you want to give them this same gift that you, we just mentioned here earlier, the Holy Spirit, to be their guide and helper. We pray over this moment, Lord, that you would transform hearts. And for the rest of us, Lord, those of us that are considering which relationships we have not, um, we have not been good stewards with, which members may be in our family that we've neglected, Lord, I do pray that this word would inspire love. I pray that we would leave here committed to beholding one another, that we would not miss the opportunity to be your hands and feet in the lives of the people that you've called us to live life with. I pray that we would be on that adventure and that we would experience the beauty of living the life that you've called us to live. We thank you that we all come to you in grace. It's not by our own works. And we just celebrate the love that you've given us here today and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.